0: Ken Ham is the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum, as well as the Ark Encounter. Ken, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Kirk. Great to be with you. Ken, uh, we've been friends for a while and uh, I can't get over the last time I was there at the Ark Encounter. I I love the Creation Museum, but this time I got to walk through a life-size building of Noah's Ark. And and we had such a great time. You have a homeschool conference uh, that you're putting on every year and it is just fantastic. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. As long as
1: you don't call it a boat, it's a ship. It's a (laughs) life-size Noah's Ark and it's a ship.
0: (laughs) That's right, that's right. And and, and and I'm so glad that you built the Ark the way that you did, uh, according to the dimensions in Scripture, because so often we have in our head that little uh, that 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 little storybook version of Noah's Ark and it's like this little boat with the giraffe's head sticking out of the out of out of the top of it. And people need to understand that no, this is a massive seaworthy vessel. Oh yes, in fact, uh, you know
1: it's not one of those bathtub arcs with giraffe sticking out the chimney about to sink at any moment. I'm sure you've you've seen those bathtub arcs in a lot of children's books and so on. Now this is built to the dimensions in the Bible, as you say, uh, according to the cubits, and we've taken an ancient cubit, a royal cubit, so it works out to be one and a half times the length of a football field, half the width of a football field, three point three million board feet of timber, and we built it fifteen feet off the ground, so. From ground level to the midsection is seven stories. At the bow, it's actually 10 stories. It's the biggest freestanding timber frame structure in the
0: world. And it is spectacular. I've seen it myself. Well, Ken, I want to talk about um, Noah's Ark. I want to talk about dinosaurs. I want to talk about fossils and everything else. But first, I'd just like to go back and, and ask you how you got to this place. I heard that your father taught you apologetics, the defending of the faith, at an early age, Uh, is that true? And, And how did that guide your interest into this subject?
1: Well, you know, being brought up in Australia, I mean, it's a fairly pagan country. Probably the number of people that are true born again Christians is less than 1%. And my father was a teacher and we were transferred around the state of Queensland every three years as he was promoted. But a lot of the little country towns we went to only had one church or no churches, or they would start Sunday schools, bring evangelists in. But one of the things that my father noticed was that a number of the pastors had been impacted by liberal theology through their seminaries. And so he studied liberal theology to make sure he had answers, to make sure that he equipped us so that we wouldn't be led astray. And he was adamant about never compromising God's word. I mean, he taught us over and over again, you don't take man's fallible words and add them to God's word or to to interpret God's word, reinterpret it according to what man was saying. And that greatly impacted me. So, you know, when I became a teacher in 1975, and one of the first lessons I had uh, was students saying, so how can you believe the Bible? We know you're a Christian, but the Bible can't be true because of evolution. And you know, it's interesting. When I first went to high school, our textbooks taught evolution. I remember my father sitting down with me and going through that and saying, "If you believe in evolution, you undermine all doctrine. You undermine the Bible because Genesis one to eleven is the foundation for all doctrine for the rest of the Bible huh. for everything." And uh, so, there I was as a school teacher, seeing that these kids wouldn't even listen to the gospel because they thought the Bible couldn't be trusted because of what they're taught about evolution. And I'd already studied to get some answers to that, answers that my father had given me, you know, theologically. And I'd also obtained some books to get some scientific answers as well and started teaching those students. I had a great impact on them. And uh. when I saw that impact, it really... Uh, affected me. And as I was taking them to museums and saw they're all from an evolutionist perspective, that's when I had the burden, why can't we build a creation museum? So that's sort of you a know, little summary of how all that started and how my interest in that uh, began.
0: I-, I love the whole story. It-, it took you across the ocean to the United States. And-, and 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 where did you get the idea for the creation museum? I mean, what, what a concept. Most people think of a museum, uh, a natural history museum, that that it was the opposite of what we would read in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, and, and it's huge, and it's it's magnificent. The quality is just unbeatable. Did God give you a, a just a, a vision in your mind of what that was going to be? How did you come up with the idea? A lot of people,
1: even in the church, thought you could believe in evolution did matter, Genesis didn't matter. But then I started to realize that they didn't have an understanding of biblical history to have right world view to correctly understand the world and what we really needed was a walk through the bible beginning with the first 11 chapters and walking people through that history god has revealed to us because then that becomes the foundation for the right way of thinking or putting on the right glasses to correctly understand the world and as you think in terms of a perfect creation marred by sin corruption enters, then death as a consequence of sin, the promise of the Savior, and then the catastrophe of the flood of Noah's day, and then the confusion at the Tower of Babel. That's Genesis 1 to 11. That's the foundation for the rest of the Bible, for all of our doctrine. That's the geological, biological, astronomical, anthropological history. That's the foundation for everything, our doctrine, worldview, the rest of the Bible, And I realize people need that linear understanding of history to walk them through Mm. the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And at the same time, they need answers to what the world is saying today that attacks that history. That's right. And so I always wanted to have this walk through the Bible. and, And that was the whole foundation for the Creation Museum, to have this walk through the Bible answering questions of the day. In other words, getting people to think foundationally and equipped with apologetics.
0: Ken, what are some of your favorite exhibits in the Creation Museum?
1: Well, they're all my favorite exhibit, Kurt, because they're all (laughs) (laughs) important.
0: I personally love the Garden of Eden. I love seeing the serpent there. He's sort of hiding and slithering through the branches of the tree. Uh, It's just fascinating to look and see this this scene that we've really only imagined in our minds, just created right there in front of you with with unbelievable sculptures and and all of that. But what, what are some of your favorites?
1: One of our latest exhibits that really has become a favorite is the Fearfully Wonderfully Made exhibit. When you think of the abortion issue that's in the news every day in our recent times, you know, uh, who would have thought that we, we would have such an exhibit that I believe is the most powerful pro-life exhibit in the world where we deal with the... Uh, understanding of how life develops in the womb from fertilization and we have all these wonderful models and so on. And I see a lot of people coming out there in tears as they are really challenged uh, concerning this issue because, you know, humans are made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. And right from fertilization, we have all the information that builds us. No new information is ever added. So as our body develops, as as God describes it in Psalm 139, when I knit you together in in your mother's womb, when I saw your unformed substance, and as we go through that and then deal with all these issues and also helping people you know, understand we live in a fallen world, and and so therefore there can be problems because sin has caused problems in this world. But dealing with all of those issues from a biblical worldview perspective, it's really powerful.
0: I have been to the Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibit at the Creation Museum, and it is the most powerful pro-life exhibit in the world. I haven't seen all of them, but I'm sure of it because it it just rocked me and and if you have not had a chance to go see this at the creation museum i highly recommend it ken why was it so important for you to build a life-size replica of noah's ark you you really could have done this cheaper you really could have done this in a lot less uh, with a lot less headache you went all out
1: yeah i've traveled all around the world i've traveled for over 40 years and Whatever country I went to, people had the same basic questions, and they were questions like, well, how could Noah get the animals on the ark? And atheists would use that to say Noah's ark couldn't have happened. And Noah's ark is very important. The whole flood is a very very important event. It's an integral event in history because if the flood is true, then most of your fossil record is a graveyard of the flood. It's not the graveyard of millions of years of evolutionary processes. And also Noah's ark is a picture of Jesus. There's one door on the side of the ark. And Noah and his family had to go through that one door to be saved. It's a reminder we need to go through that one door. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he'll be saved. And so it's a picture of salvation. And so that event was a very important event in history. And it's an important event biologically because if the kinds of land animals are on the ark and came off the ark, then those species forming from those kinds, that's not evolution. And that happened since the Ark of Noah. And then it's important anthropologically because only eight people got off that ship. And actually, if you do calculations according to population growth uh, from eight people 4,300 years ago, you can get 8 billion today because population growth is exponential. In fact, that's what you'd expect. You only need a growth rate of about, you know, 2.4 or so uh, children per generation to get 8 billion people today. So it makes sense of the population
0: uh, that we have. It's a, Mm. it's a very, very important thing in history. Ken, I want to know why did you pick the book of Genesis? I think few people would argue, uh, that, uh, that, that it, it has the best stories in the Bible. I mean, we're, we're talking about Noah's Ark. We're talking about Adam and Eve. We're talking about the tower of Babel. We're talking about, but why not answers in the old Testament or answers in Leviticus? Why did you pick Genesis? Why is it so important?
1: Every single biblical doctrine of theology directly or indirectly is founded in Genesis 1 to 11. You start to think about it. You know, why why was Jesus called the last Adam? Took the place of the first Adam, Genesis 1 to 11. Why did he die on the cross? Because of what happened in Genesis 1 to 11. Where did sin come from? Genesis 1 to 11. Why do we die? Genesis 1 to 11. Why do we have a seven-day week? genesis 1 to 11 why does man have dominion over the animals over the creation and not creation dominion over us as many p- politicians have it today well genesis 1 to 11 why do we have to work hard there's a doctrine of work where does it come from genesis chapter 1 to 11 uh two genders genesis 1 to 11 marriage genesis 1 to 11 why do you wear clothes i notice you're wearing clothes uh Kirk, which is good, you know, uh, but animals don't wear clothes. We have a zoo here and at the ark, and the animals don't wear clothes. Only humans wear clothes. God gave clothes because of sin, Genesis 1 to 11. Wow. You get the feeling Genesis 1 to 11 is important. Genesis 1 to 11 is actually the foundation of the rest of the Bible for all of our doctrine, for our whole worldview. In fact, Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for everything. And once you understand that, a light bulb goes on because then when you want to deal with any of these issues, any issue whatsoever, you want to deal with gender, you want to deal with abortion, you want to deal with marriage, you want to deal with racism. See, we all go back to Adam and Eve. There's only one race. Humans are made in the image of God. That has a great bearing on how you view abortion. Everything's founded in Genesis 1 to 11. That's why we emphasize Genesis 1 to 11. And in today's world, much of the church, sadly, um, and the world, Uh, doesn't believe Genesis 1 to 11. And when you look in the church, we're losing the younger generations from the church. and, And they're being impacted by the LGBT worldview and so on. Because if you don't teach them that foundational history from Genesis 1 to 11, then they will not have a biblical worldview or know what they believe or why. And that's how the world can then come in and impact.
0: Ken, after the break, let's talk more about the foundations for living outlined in the book of Genesis. We're back with Ken Ham to talk about the beginning, the book of Genesis. Ken, I love the book of Genesis. I always go back when I don't have a particular book of the Bible that I'm studying and I'm just looking for some, some something to read in the scriptures. I love going to Genesis. I just love those stories. But you're pointing out that that those stories are, are really historical accounts that lay the foundation for so many of the things that we do today and the things that we believe. You mentioned a few of them. Um, A seven-day work week, the doctrine of work, gender, marriage. Let's dive into a couple of those. Uh, Is that really where we get the seven-day work week Uh, or the five-day work week and the seven-day week? I've always, when when I was a kid, I wanted to turn it around. I wanted the five days to be the days of rest and the two days of work.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, here's what's interesting. Okay, where do we get our day from? It's basically, you know, the rotation of the earth and light and darkness you know, giving us a day. Okay, where do we get the the month from? Well, it's the Earth in relationship to the Moon. Where do we get the year from? Well, the Earth and its relationship to the Sun. Where do we get the seven day week from? Well, the Bible. Uh, that's where it comes from. It comes from no other place. It comes comes from no astronomical observation. You know, Exodus twenty verse eleven, which is the basis of the fourth commandment, says, "In six days." The Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the seventh day, made holy and so on. In other words, the seven-day week comes from the creation week in Genesis chapter 1. And And think about it. You know, there are some people that think those days are millions of years long. I mean, if God made everything in six millions of years and rested for millions of years, it would be a very interesting week, wouldn't It wouldn't make any sense. You could tell people, you know, I'm in the millions of years rest, so I'm not doing any work. Uh, I'm just going to rest for millions of years. See, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. When God made everything in six days and rested for one, that's where a seven-day week comes from, which is why I say, you know, when you're you're witnessing to an atheist, you can ask them if they believe in a seven-day week, and when they do, or if they have a seven-day week at their house, oh, so you do believe the Bible after all, because that's where it comes from.
0: You also say, Ken, that it's important to reference Genesis when we're sharing the gospel with someone. Why would you do that?
1: Coke, I've actually heard pastors say, and I've had people tell me this, that they say, well, when you go out and you're witnessing to somebody, uh, now, if they bring up issues of evolution or questioning, you know, the Bible or creation or whatever it is, don't worry about that. Just tell them to trust in Jesus. You know, don't worry about Genesis. Keep that, they're red herrings, those questions. Keep away from that. But well, wait a minute, you think about this. How do you go and witness to somebody and teach them the gospel without Genesis chapter 1 to 11. You imagine you say to somebody, oh, I want to tell you about Jesus. Who's he? Well, he died on the cross for you. Well, why did he die? Oh, well, don't worry about that. Just he died on the cross for your sin. Where Why am I a sinner? Where did that come from? Oh, don't worry about that. Just accept it. How do you explain the gospel without explaining that God created us and he created the first man and woman and the first man, Adam, rebelled against God. That's where sin came from. We're all descendants of him. That's why we're sinners. And death was a penalty for sin. And yet God promised a savior. That's why God's son stepped into history to be the perfect sinless uh, God man as the son of God to die on a cross because death was a penalty for sin to be raised from the dead and offers a free gift of salvation. The whole foundation of the gospel is in Genesis 1 to 11, the origin of sin the origin of death, the first time the gospel is actually preached is in Genesis 3.15 when God promised a Savior. We, we call that the proto-gospel there, but we, we know what it is. It's the promise of the Savior. And so the events in Genesis 1 to 11 enable us to explain to people who Jesus is. See, in, in generations past, you know, th- there was a lot more Christianized worldview permeating the culture and p- more respect for the Bible and sort of people had a bit of an understanding of Adam and Eve and sin and so on. But we have generations today that have been taught against the Bible. They don't even know what the Bible teaches. They don't know what Genesis teaches. How do you go and tell them about Jesus dying on the cross for you without the foundational knowledge in Genesis 1 to 11? You can't do it.
0: I understand exactly what you're saying. I can also hear uh, some Christians pushing back saying, but wait a minute. If I start bringing up <clears throat> Genesis, uh, now I'm going to have to answer questions about a talking snake I'm going to have to start to answer questions about magical fruit on a tree and all those animals fitting in. And and, and I'm going to run out of time. I won't be able to share the gospel with them. Are we actually just opening up a can of worms and we'll never be able to share the gospel if we try to justify Genesis?
1: Well, remember uh, that um, for a lot of people, they will bring up all sorts of questions because in their minds, they are stumbling blocks. In other words, we have got to be equipped which means we have to study to show ourselves approved as workmen under God, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give answers, uh, to give a defense. Uh, the word answers or, or, or defense is, comes from the Greek word apologia, from which we get a word apologetics. Mm. We have to be prepared to give answers. We can't just go out there and say, hey, just believe this. We have got to be prepared. You know, there's, there's responsibility right. and sovereignty. They go hand in hand all the way through the Bible. And so, yes, you can trust the sovereignty of God to go out and just tell people trust in Jesus. But when they are asking questions, we got to be prepared to answer those questions as well. Scripture tells us that. So both go hand in hand.
0: And and one of the reasons I'm so thankful for you and for Answers in Genesis is that you actually give great answers for really difficult questions. For those believers who just really wrestle with how to interpret Genesis 1 through 11, uh, is it okay to just agree to disagree if someone wants to allegorize uh, Adam and Eve, if they want to say these weren't real people, these are just symbols, these are representations of how God, it's a creation story. Um, is that okay? Can we still be brothers and sisters and agree to disagree? What do we read in Scripture?
1: If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and believe in literal Genesis and six literal days and don't believe in evolution of millions <laughs> of years, you can be saved. Right, it, right is that point. what the Bible says? Uh, the Bible doesn't say that. Salvation is conditioned upon faith in Christ. So, in other words, can somebody believe in millions of years and still still be a Christian? I know, I know, there are many Christians that believe in millions of years. Can they reject the literal Adam and Eve and still be a Christian? Well, there are people that reject the literal Adam and Eve, and 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 they profess faith in Christ. So, I'm not going to question that. The point is, you people can be inconsistent in the way they believe. Uh, People are inconsistent all the time. But if you don't believe in a literal Genesis, then I believe you are undermining the authority of Scripture. You've opened up a door. Because why don't they believe in a literal Adam and Eve? Why don't they believe in six literal days? You'll find it's because of outside influences and impact of evolutionary ideas and so on. And they're going to the Bible and saying, you know, this... This can't be literal history. We've got to reinterpret it. But what they've really done is unlock the door to say you don't take God's word as written. Wait a minute. Jesus took Genesis as written. Paul took Genesis as written. Peter took Genesis as written. And you see, it comes down to an issue of authority. Once you've unlocked the door to say you don't need to take this uh-huh. as written in the context, it's – it's. um uh, historical narrative—that's how Genesis is written and how it's interpreted through the rest of Scripture. Yeah. Then you've undermined the authority of the Word of God, and that can lead to a slippery slide of unbelief.
0: That's right. It's like you're you're beginning to pull the thread of authority, and it begins to unravel the fabric of the entire Bible. It won't necessarily affect your salvation in that sense
1: if if you're truly a Christian. But but who it increasingly affects are those that you impact. In other words, the next generation and those after them who start to say, but if this is not true, how can you trust the rest? And eventually it all goes.
0: What is it about Genesis and you reading that ancient book that gives you hope today?
1: This is God's word. And this is the foundational history for us to understand who we are where we came from what our problem is we have a problem called sin but the most important thing that we have that solution in jesus the bible is is a revelation it's key information just a little bit of that infinite information he's revealed to us to enable us to understand who we are what we should believe what is right what is wrong what is good what is bad and as i said what our problem is and what the solution is in christ that's why it's so important
0: Ken, we've got so many more questions for you about creation, about dinosaurs. And we're going to answer those questions right after this. Ken, thanks so much for staying with us. Uh, I- I'd like for us now to dive into some questions about the creation account. You've spent so much of your life studying God's creation and and what God's Word says about God's creation. Uh, You've got the Creation Museum. You've got a beautiful piece of creation behind you. What are some of your favorite designs in nature? What are some of the things that really blow you away? Is it outer space? Is it it the DNA in a a human being? Well, actually,
1: now you mentioned DNA. DNA is incredible. Uh, Did you know that DNA is the most most complex information system language system in the entire universe. Well, actually, there's no such thing as DNA outside the Earth anyway. Uh, But think about a library, a library full of hundreds and hundreds of books and filled with books that have all sorts of information in them, instructions on how to build, say, a human being um, or a dog or a cat or whatever. And engineering diagrams and all sorts of other diagrams and so on. Where did all that information come from? I mean, how did it get there? Here's the interesting thing. Those who reject God, they say that life came about by natural processes. In other words, matter by itself arranged itself uh, into living things. Of course, where did the matter come from in the first place? When I debated Bill Nye, you remember Bill Nye, the science guy, Bill Nye, the humanist guy, uh, here at the Creation Museum in 2014, he was asked a question by a young boy, where did matter come from? And he said, I don't know, it's a mystery. So let's not even deal with that right now. Just we have matter. How does matter form life? If you were to add up the bits of information in living things on this planet, it's not just millions, it's not billions, it's not trillions, it's, it's zillions. I mean, the amount of information in living things is so vast, we just can't comprehend it. It's incredible. Do you know, we've never seen matter produce one bit of information by itself. It can't happen. There, there's no law of nature that matter produces information. There is no such law. Information comes from information. And not only that, all that information, you imagine you've got all these books, but if you speak English and the books are in Russian, how do you read them? You've got to have the language. You need to be able to translate them. Well, here's the interesting thing. DNA has the language. It has the information to make the language to read the DNA. And where does a language come from? Language has only come from an intelligence. Do you realize that DNA actually cries out, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, the creator? Because there's no way DNA could come about by natural processes. And that's why the Bible says, uh, in Romans, for instance, if you don't believe in God, you are without excuse. For uh, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, uh, so that you are without excuse because it's so obvious that there's a creator. There's no way life would come about by natural processes. So DNA
0: cries that out. The Bible says that God looked at his creation and said that it was good. But then, right on the heels of this goodness, we see the serpent coming in and tempting Eve. How is that good? God must have put the serpent in the garden and he knows all things that that was going to happen. So how do we reconcile the temptation of Adam and Eve with something that God called good?
1: Well, you know, actually, when when God finished creating on day six, he then said everything was very good because his whole creation was finished. We know that uh, he created angels. Uh, We know they were part of the creation because Colossians 1 says he created all principalities and powers. And we know everything was very good to start with, which means all the principalities and powers they are all very good. An an angel called Lucifer came and tempted Adam and Eve. God didn't make us to be a puppet. He didn't make us to force him to love him. He wanted us to love him because we wanted to. We're created beings. And see, as created beings, even Lucifer, you know, the angels are created beings. And so if we don't look to God, who is the infinite creator and infinitely good, and we don't listen to him, uh. Uh, then what's going to happen? God said to Adam, don't eat the fruit of this one tree. You can eat of all the trees, but this one you're not to eat of. So it was a test of obedience and really saying, obey God's word, look to God, obey God's word. But then along came the devil. They said, no, 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 look to yourself. You become your own God. And that's the battle that started, that rages around us today, a battle between God's word and man's word. Why ultimately did God let that happen and and knowing that would happen? Because he created uh, creatures who are not infinite like him, because he is the infinite creator. Um, All we can say is, you know, he created us because he wanted to redeem a people for his son. And that's what the Bible says. So in the purposes of God, um, that's what God allowed, and that's what's happened. And and that's why the Bible says, you know, without faith, it's impossible uh, to believe in him. There's always a faith aspect because we are finite beings. We don't know everything. Only God knows everything. And that doesn't mean that we don't have answers for lots of things, but it means with some things we don't have the ultimate answers where we have to trust God with the answers he's given us.
0: What was the fruit, Ken? Was it an apple? Was it an orange? What did Eve eat? Do we know?
1: No. <laughs> now the Bible doesn't tell us what fruit it was. That's why, for instance, at the Creation Museum, when you see Adam and Eve, and you see uh, Adam taking the fruit, we have the fruit looking so different to an apple or, or anything else because we, we just made up our own fruit and made it to be a small fruit because we wanted to make the point is the Bible doesn't tell us what it was. And so, you know, traditionally, of course, people talk about Adam eating the apple and so on and and falling, uh, but we don't know what the fruit was. But we do know it was a real fruit and it was a real treat. It wasn't fruit that caused it. It it was Adam's problem. He should have listened to God. And as you're right, he was standing there with his wife. He was standing there when Eve uh, took the fruit. He should have said to her, no, we're going to obey God's word. But he didn't do that.
0: That's right. Let's talk about dinosaurs. When we think of dinosaurs, we think of Jurassic Park-sized animals. And most of us have been taught that man was never around at the time of the dinosaurs, that that came millions and millions of years before. What do we really know about dinosaurs? Has our imaginations gone wild?
1: First of all, you know, when people say to me, well, did, did God create dinosaurs in the Garden of Eden? Well, remember, the word dinosaur is a modern word, right? You know, people say to me, "But." you know, th- there's no word dinosaur in the Bible. Well, there's no word email in the Bible either uh, because email <laughs> is a modern word, right? The word dinosaur was invented by an Englishman, Sir Richard Owen, in 1841. He had found uh, that people were digging up bones of creatures, fossils, and they'd found uh, bones of, you know, guanodon and megalosaurus and, and started to recognise there were these creatures that were in the fossil record, uh, that were sort of like reptiles, and yet they had legs that were sort of underneath them, more like, walk more, more like a cow or a horse, not like a crocodile or alligator has, you know, their legs out to the side or a lizard has their legs out to the side. And so we wanted a name for these. And so from two Greek words, dinos and Saurus, uh, he invented the name Dinosauria, which, which meant fearfully, fearful lizard is what it meant. And over the years, we've shortened it to dinosaur, and we say it means terrible lizard, But what uh, Richard Owen didn't even know back then, over the years, as they found all sorts of fossils, uh, they started to change, you know, what determines what a dinosaur is and so on. Uh, And now, you know, the word dinosaur applies to animals from the size of chickens or even smaller uh, up to some gigantic beasts. In other words, not all dinosaurs were great big monsters.
0: Ken, you point out that many of our uh, fathers of science, people like Galileo and Johann Kepler and Pascal, they believed in a literal understanding of Genesis. Um, How did an evolutionary understanding of the beginnings of the world get to be so popular?
1: You know, when people think of the word evolution, I'm going to give them another word that I would encourage you to be thinking about. Um, and, And that is the word naturalism. You see, naturalism is atheism. Now, what do we mean by naturalism? Naturalism is the philosophy that uh, only matter exists, by the way, which, which, you know, in other words, a material universe, which which is a problem because um, when you start to think about the laws of nature, they're not material. Where did they come from? You know, uh, and and, and so it goes on. But uh, here's the thing. Back in the 1800s, there were atheists and, and deists, but there were primarily atheists that said we don't believe in in uh, the, the the flood of Noah's day. We don't believe in the Bible. So how do you, how do all these fossils come up, come about? We want to explain everything by natural processes, and so without God, no supernatural. They say the layers of fossils were laid down over millions of a million years before man. You know what happened back then in the eighteen hundreds? There were church leaders like Thomas Chalmers, the founder of the Free Church of Scotland, who said. We'll take the millions of years then and put it in a gap between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2 and invented the gap theory. Others said, oh, we'll change the days of creation and uh, say that they're long periods of time. And then, longs, there comes a man uh, called Darwin who says, if you've got millions of years in geology, we can explain biology by natural processes, given millions of years, the little changes we see can add up to big changes, and ape-like creatures turn into people. and then people start to say, "Well, well, maybe God used evolution, and then long comes a big bang, and we'll say, "God used the big bang." So out of naturalism, out of the naturalism of, of, of trying to explain geology came the naturalism of biology that Darwin proposed. We've got to understand something. Really, in essence, I'm going to be blunt, Australian blunt, evolution of millions of years is the pagan religion of the age to try to explain life without God. It's the religion of naturalism or the religion of atheism. That's what it is. And it really started to rear its head in the 1800s and started to permeate the world and permeate the church to get to where we are today.
0: I know some people who are off the charts brilliant, and they love God, as far as I can tell, and they hold to fidelity to the scriptures and believe that the universe is billions of years old. And I heard the one explanation uh, put sort of like this. um, In my automobile, uh, there's an explosion that takes place when the spark hits the gasoline and the force is channeled through a very well-designed machine and it makes my car go forward but the explosion is, is, is random. Everything just happens mechanically because of the original design of that engine. Uh, why then can't there be a scenario where God just designed the universe sort of like an engine, then there was an explosion billions of years ago, and everything just sort of is, has been running forward mechanically since then because of the great design of the original engine. What's wrong with that?
1: It's not a matter of what God could have done. It's not a matter of what you think he did. It's a matter of what he said he did. See, this is where it really comes down to that issue of biblical authority. And one of the things my father always taught me, when something looks like it contradicts the Bible, you go back to the Bible. This is God's word. You make sure you're taking it in context, according to, to, to the grammar, the literature, Genesis Genesis's historical narrative. And if there's still a contradiction, you don't question God's word. It's man's fallible word that you question. And that is an important lesson for every one of us. And to understand, if you want to know the truth about origins, you've got to look to the one who was there, who knows everything. And there's only one, and that is God. And he's given us his word.
0: That's what's so exciting about the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter is because you see that what we see in the real world actually lines up perfectly with what God says and explains why we're seeing what we're seeing in the real world. After the break, we're gonna ask Ken our pressing questions about Noah's Ark, like how did all of the animals fit and where did all the water go? Don't go away. We're back with Ken Ham to talk about the historicity of Noah's Ark. Ken, many people look at the fossil record and they see that as evidence for godless evolution. But you say that the fossil record is actually evidence of Noah's flood. Why do you say that?
1: Well, you know, you don't look at the fossils and see evolution. You see dead things, right? That's what you see. Right. And actually, all over the Earth, we see dead things. In fact, there are billions of dead things. You know, if Noah's flood was true, you'd expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. And you know what you find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. See, to make a fossil is a catastrophic event. I mean, if you go home and your pet cat just died, sorry about that, but I don't like cats, Uh, and and, and you said, I don't want to lose my cat. I want to to turn it into a fossil. If you put it on your front yard and put a sign there, uh, dead cat fossilising, do not touch, scientific experiment in progress, it is not going to fossilise. It will decay, other animals eat it. I mean, when a deer dies in the woods, in the the summer, two weeks, and there's hardly anything left at all. How do you make a fossil? You've got to cover something catastrophically. On this earth, we have billions and billions and billions of fossils in layers, thousands of feet thick. You have to have an awful lot of water, an awful lot of mud, which sounds like what? The flood. And see, what the evolutionists say is those fossils were laid down millions of years before man. And by the way, many of those fossils show evidence of diseases like cancer, and abscesses and arthritis remember after god created man he said everything was very good so you can't add the millions of years into the bible because then you'd have god saying cancer is very good so the fossils according to the biblical history had to come after man was created had to come after sin because it's sin that led to death and disease in a groaning world And so it's the flood that makes sense of the fossils. And, you know, you don't you don't see one kind of animal changing into another kind in the fossil record. You just find the kinds that are preserved. That's all you find.
0: And you can see that at the Creation Museum through the exhibits that are there. Um, Ken, what are some of the exhibits in the Ark Encounter that answer some of those difficult questions? What, what, what are some of the questions that people have that they look at the exhibit and go, oh, that's how they did it, that's how Noah did this? Questions like, how did Noah get the animals on the ark? I mean, how do they fit?
1: How many were needed on the ark? Uh, well, wait a minute, how do he look after them? How did he water them? How did they feed them? How did they uh, get rid of waste and so on? And we have exhibits that deal with all of those questions on the ark and a lot more. We look at the flood in regard to climate change. Uh, as, as Noah and his family came off the ark, then we look at post-flood events like the Tower of Babel and the formation of different people groups, not races. We go through all of those. In fact, on deck one, when you walk into that, I mean, this is a life-size Noah's Ark, and on deck one we particularly have there uh, an exhibit with a cutaway model of the Ark, and we have signs there saying 1,398, you know, animal kinds at the most were on Noah's Ark. Now we think the real number's less than a thousand. And we list the animal kinds that were needed on the ark. And how do we how do we find those? We did all the research for this, and we've got it in our Answers Research Journal, which is a, a free journal on, on the web. Uh, but what take dogs. There's 34 species of dogs. And what our scientists were able to do is go and document that all those species are connected genetically. In other words... This species bred with this one, this one with this one, this one with this one, this one over here never bred with this one way over here, but they're still connected. And if they're all connected, then that means they're all of one kind. And when you do that, you find most animals are connected at the family level of classification. In other words, for dogs, Canadae, the family, we would say two of the dog family got on the Ark. And the same for cats. So all your cat species today came from the two cats that were on the Ark, all your... Dog species That's today right. come from the two dogs that were in the ark. And we explain all that in the exhibits. Today.
0: That's right. So let me ask you about the water. Where, If the if the mountains were covered with water because of a global flood, does that mean that there was enough water to co- cover Mount Everest? And if so, where did all the water go?
1: Okay, good question. That's one that we answer in, in the ark exhibits as well. and It's one we get asked. I've been asked that a lot over the years. First of all, when you look at, say, the Himalayas, Right you have marine fossils on the top of the Himalayas. Wait a minute, marine fossils how'd they get there? Well, if you were to level out the earth's surface so today you level out all the mountains and the ocean basins and make a smooth earth there's enough water to cover to a depth of two miles. in other words, there's plenty of water on earth right now to cover the entire earth so how do the how do fossils get on the top of uh of the Himalayas and other mountain ranges around the world. Here's what we would say. At the end of the flood, at the end of the flood, God raised up the mountains and lowered the ocean basins. In fact, one of the Psalms, is, it seems to even even talk about that in Psalm 104. God raised the mountains, lowered the ocean basin. So the water poured off the earth to where it is. And when you look at these mountain ranges, you see where they've been uplifted. So the mountains obviously weren't as high, and the ocean basins not as deep before the flood. And so, if you want to know where's the water from the flood, it's covering the earth right now, right? Seventy-five percent of the earth is covered in water. Three quarters of the earth is covered in water. The water poured off, uh, and and you can see that. For instance, if you take the Grand Canyon, that whole area was uplifted because when you go up on the Kaibab Plateau. Um, you're going up, you know, if you're in Arizona there in Phoenix and you want to go up to the Grand Canyon, you have to go up because the whole area is lifted up. And there are all these fractures that occurred in the rocks because of that. So the fossil layers were laid down and that area was uplifted. And as it was uplifted and caused all these fractures, it also caused a dam. And you can see where there were once gigantic lakes um there that uh, were formed by that dam and then because the material was soft and was fractured by the uplift uh then the water broke through the dam and gouged it out and actually if you go downstream from uh the grand canyon you can see where the sediment was deposited uh, in massive layers as it was gouged out of the Grand Canyon. Uh, and so um, when we start to think about the flood model and how it occurred and what happened at the end of the flood, we also believe there was one continent before the flood and that continent split up at the end of the flood, all part of you know building the mountain ranges and, and, and so on, and then the water pouring off the earth.
0: Ken, how do we think about a loving God flooding the earth? where? where all these people died, including women and children, not just some, a few really bad guys.
1: Well, let me ask you a question first, okay? Um, for someone who's an atheist, says there's no God, and he says, well, your God's unjust if he did that. Wait a minute. How does an atheist decide what is just and what is not just? How do they determine what is right and what's wrong? By what standard? By whose standard?" And that's what we have to, first of all, ask ourselves, and that is, who is God? He's the absolute authority. He determines what is good. He determines what is right. He determines what is bad. He determines what is just. I mean, if, if we do that ourselves, then it's all subjective and it's all relative. So why should somebody else have the same right and wrong as us? So when somebody accuses God, for instance, an atheist will accuse God of being unjust, they can't do that. Because how can they take their own subjective standards right. and moral relativism and try to uh, force that on somebody else? We've got to understand from the perspective is God is the creator and he's the just God and he judges sin. He's also a God who judges and he judges sin and he judges wickedness. So what, did, what does the Bible say about the people at the time of the flood? He says every thought of their heart was, uh, was evil continually. And so God has every right uh, to judge uh, those people because of their wickedness. And we have no right to judge God
0: because of who he is. What about people who struggle with the idea that all of the diversity within the human race could have come just from Noah and his family? that there would be many more abnormalities, there would have been way too many problems, and we never could have the diversity that we have today in the world. What do you say to that?
1: Well, first of all, um, Kirk, can, can you think how big 10 to the 80th power is, a one followed by 80 zeros? None of us can even think that big. A one followed by 80 zeros, do you realize that's the estimate of the number of atoms in the whole universe, you know how big the universe is? 10 to the 80th power, atoms. If you took one man and one woman um, right now from their DNA and the information in their DNA, how many children could they potentially have without having the same combination of information? 10 to the 2017th power. I mean, compared to the number Ah. of atoms in the universe, 10 to the 80th power. In other words, here's what we've got to remember. God put incredible potential incredible potential, uh, genetically, genetic diversity in the dog kind, the cat kind, the elephant kind, and so on. So when the dog kind came off the ark, over time, depending on which made it with which, and they split up and so on, you get different species. In the human kind, when the event of the Tower of Babel occurred, and God gave different languages about 150 years after the flood, people split up and move away from each other. And depending on who marries who, who dies out, we get certain features um, They only represent minor genetics really uh, on the outside, darker skin, lighter skin, because we've all got the same skin color, it's a pigment called melanin, but we see all these these differences that are there. You look at 8 billion people today, we all look different from each other. That's because of all that information that's there. In other words, because God put an incredible amount of diversity in our DNA and because of the event of the Tower of Babel forming different people groups, uh, that's why we see distinguishing features of, of certain groups. But because of all that information, we see incredible variability. It's basically unlimited uh, in the humankind. And that's where those differences come from. You mentioned one thing, though, that that's very important to understand. Um, and that is, you know, when you, because of sin, there are now mutations and so, um, so what about you know? Wouldn't wouldn't people have died out because of all the, the the problems from genetics and so on? But because of the amount of diversity that God has put there, uh, it, it, it re- and because sin has caused a problem, that's why at the time of Moses, God said no longer could close relatives marry, because as sin caused all these problems building up, if if close relations marry today bad genes can get together. But because of the incredible diversity God put in our DNA, if the further away in relationship you are, the more likely you've got a bad gene, it can be overridden by a good gene that masks
0: it. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.